The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to the evangelist Mark, as recorded in chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were alone by themselves. There he was transfigured in front of them. His clothes became radiant, dazzling white, whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. And Elijah appeared to them together with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were terrified. A cloud appeared and overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Our text begins telling us after six days. Six days after what? Well, Jesus was in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, we're told, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the experts in the law, be killed, and after three days rise again. He was speaking plainly to them. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But after turning around and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have your mind set on the things of God, but the things of men. He called the crowd and his disciples together and said to them, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. After all, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? In fact, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What a contrast from what is seen six days later. The disciples, in fact, all of Jerusalem, pretty much as a whole, was looking for a king, and the scripture said he would sit on David's throne. So they were thinking of a political king, a king who would defeat the Romans and then replace the Romans as an empire, and the treasures of the world would filter into Jerusalem as the capital of a Jewish empire. They had misunderstood the scriptures completely. The throne Jesus sits on is his godly throne. And in fact, the glory that they rejected, and Jesus has to rebuke Peter for rebuking him, the glory of God is that the God-man hangs, what the world would say, shamefully on the cross for your and my sins. For there we are saved. Ah, but six days later, you know, Peter had rebuked him. No, Lord, enough of this, you're dying stuff. Enough of this, uh, we're going to have to bear crosses and be hated. No, we want a glorious kingdom. And then he gets to see but for a brief moment, all that brilliant radiancy of Christ's Godhood shining out. Now we're talking, right? Except for it's only a glimpse. As we're told in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They wanted to see Jesus' glory like that. They wanted to see Jesus on a throne. They were not capable at the time of seeing Jesus' godly glory as he hangs he shamefully, nakedly on the cross. So today, as we look at this brief glimpse of Jesus' glory, we will ask the question, is this the glory we want? Like Peter wanted and the disciples wanted to see a godly glory just forcing the world to love God? Or the glory we need? 
the glory that saves us. But as we answer that question, first we have to ask the question, why did he only take these three disciples? The truth of the matter is, many times we would like to know why God chose us. Well, it's because he's a gracious God. The same kind of grace that led him to the cross. These guys were no different than the other nine, and we know one of them is going to betray him. Jesus chose those three purely out of grace. However, one could say, Peter ends up by his natural gifts leading the disciples, not like a lord or a dictator, but he's kind of the disciple's disciple in many ways. He's the man of action. James is going to be the first apostle to be martyred. And John, well, John's gospel, he calls, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, who in today we would translate in modern English, Jesus' best friend. But again, the real reason is grace. And why didn't he pick all the disciples? The key thing we want to see is, Jesus, he has a word of comfort for the world. But he doesn't appear to us in his godly glory saying, wham, here's your comfort. That would terrify us. In fact, we were even told the disciples were terrified. He comes to us from the lips of other human beings who share with us the terrifying law that we are sinners who are damned and share with us the wonderful, gracious news that God became a man, lived perfectly for us, suffered the punishment for us, did all the work to save us. These three were to comfort the rest when the time would come. And it reminds us that Jesus, when he comes to us, he doesn't come with a great display of his godly glory as we would like. He comes to us quietly, gently. As the baptismal waters are poured over a head, and it's not shouted out, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He comes to us as we began our service confessing, Lord, I am a rotten, miserable sinner, and I did it again this week. Couldn't help myself. Maybe like me, you thought of a few sins that are especially haunting you. And then he came through the mouth of a called servant who assured you, Christ has died for all your sins. They're washed away. He comes to us in this really weird way, in what we are doing right now. He has chosen a sinner, a sinner who has studied the word of God, torn it down, and then put it together in a sermon. And our own sinful nature will not let us hang off of every word of the sermon. And lots of times that sinner does not deliver that sermon in a way that makes us hang off of every word. But he comes to us to assure us again and to build us up and to edify us. And then here in a few minutes... A dry wafer is going to be placed in our hand. And we'll put that in our mouth. And and if you're like me, most of the time it sticks to the back of the roof of your mouth. And you need that little bit of wine, that one ounce, just to rinse it free. Well, that doesn't seem very glorious, does it? But in, with, and under it is the body and blood of Christ nourishing our soul. He comes to us in a way in which many of us celebrated this morning in Bible study, in which a leader asks us questions. Oh, but we get to wrestle with the word of God and we get to ask our questions back. He comes to us in the quiet of our own homes as we open up devotions like our meditations and take three to ten minutes a day and are assured again that the real glory of God, yes, there's a time when we will see his godly glory, but the real glory is that he hid his godly glory, used his godly glory to hang on that cross and die for our sins that we could be made God's children. He chooses these three because he's going to choose to comfort the others through their lips. We're told Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Oh, if only these three disciples weren't like you and I sinners. 
because they had totally forgotten it when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Had they remembered, they could have said to the other eight, Judas is now gone, they could have said to the other eight, hey, remember how eight days before we went up on that mountain, he told us he was going to die and rise again? And remember on that mountain, we weren't allowed to tell you, but we saw his godly glory. That's the God man who died. He's going to defeat death. They would forget. Jesus would give them the Holy Spirit an extra measure after his resurrection. They would be reminded and they would comfort the other eight with these words when they were bearing crosses. They would comfort each other and they would comfort the world. Is this the glory we want or is this the glory we need? Why only the three? The glory we need is the glory that God hides himself and he uses people like you and I. Great to tell his grace. Grace spoken through an intimate family contact. You and I, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, share that good news of salvation in Christ and forgiveness with each other. We're told in the second half of verse 2, there he was transfigured in front of them. His clothes became radiant, dazzling white, whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. It was scary to see that kind of radiancy, but there his godhood is shining out. But let's admit it, up until that day, he had hid it. Glimpses of it were seen in the miracles he did. And he would hide it again until his resurrection. See, when you see his godly power like that, it's like the law. The law says, look at you, you're unholy. But when the radiance of his glory shines out, we see he is truly the holy God and he's all powerful. But that's scary. If he hadn't have hid his godhood, I've said many times and I said it this Advent season, he would have destroyed the Virgin Mary in her womb for she too confessed that she was a sinner who needed a savior. Jesus does not want to come to us the way we would like, in which suddenly, God, if you would just show up like a nuclear bomb, I am God and you will worship me. Boy, wouldn't that make things easier? But he doesn't want to overwhelm us with his godly power. He wants to woo and win us with his powerful, power-filled words of grace and forgiveness. The glory of his godly power will be seen, brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, it's seen when those baptismal waters and stuff are poured. But that's only seen through the eyes of faith then. But it will be seen when he returns on judgment day. And then the people who rejected him, the people who were indifferent towards him, the ones who let the light of their faith go out, they will look and say, that is the God of all creation. That is the redeemer. And I didn't care or I rejected him and they will be terrified. But for you and I in that day, we'll say that is the king of glory. And he used all of his godly power to stay on that cross and defeat my sins and defeat the grave and empty the tomb. And now I know he's going to use that godly power to give you and me glorified bodies and a new heaven and a new earth free from sin. Showing that godly power, is that the glory we want or is it the glory we need? He chose only the three because he chooses to share that glory through the lips of human beings, that glory of his being our savior. And Jesus usually hides his godly glory that he can give us grace, the good news of forgiveness and salvation in him without destroying us. We're told in verse four, and Elijah appeared to them together with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Once again, Moses and Elijah were outstanding men in the Old Testament. Like God used Moses to lead the people out of captivity and uh, out of slavery to Egypt. He used them to take them to the promised land. And let us not forget that God gave the Ten Commandments 
through Moses. Oh, and God gave the ceremonial law, all those laws that Christ kept for us, when you can eat and how, how often you went to the temple and when you were unclean. Moses gave all those. And Israel was originally to be a sovereign nation. He gave the civil laws to govern those that were also to reflect the glory of his moral law. Moses was a prophet. He was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament because he told the will of God. But you know, Moses gave the law. The law, if you're a sinner, when you hear it, all it can do is condemn you. Sinner, sinner, sinner. Jesus had a greater glory. Jesus came with the good news of salvation in him. Jesus is the prophet who tells the will of God because he is God. And Jesus tells us, I have kept the law for you. The gospel demands we believe it. But when Jesus sends somebody to share us the good news of salvation in him, hence the gospel, he actually uses the Holy Spirit to empower us to believe it. Moses was a sinner like you and I who was given a special honor. But Jesus' glory outshines Moses in so many ways. And Elijah, Elijah was a great reformer. Recall that the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, this was after the Civil War, had married a Phoenician woman named Jezebel. And she led the people of that northern kingdom to worship Baal. Baal was a perverse god. And with children in the room, I am not going to tell you how they worship Baal. But there's a reason why the Bible mentions temple prostitutes and things. It was a detestable practice, and the people were running to it. Elijah came as the reformer, saying, you want to worship what you think is the God of rain? Fine. God is going to shut up the skies for seven years. Elijah would not know it till near the end of his ministry, but God used him to keep 7,000 knees in Israel, 7,000 Israelites from bowing in worship to Baal. He was a reformer, but Jesus also was the greatest reformer. When Jesus came, the people of Israel had quit worshiping false gods and idols. Instead, they had taken God's law and had started worshiping it. They made it their savior. You keep the law and God saves you. Now, if you could keep the law, you would be saved. But we can't keep it. We have to keep it perfectly. If we break it once, we can't make up for it because we have to keep it perfectly. Jesus came and he told the people, and especially he, he really told the Pharisees, who many refused to get it, You cannot earn your salvation. That is not the role of the law. I will keep the law for you and save you. That was Jesus as a great reformer. Now, Elijah and Moses both often dealt with stubborn people, ignoring them, working against them, rebelling against them. Any pastor of any church can give you plenty of examples of that, too. That's what happens with the Word of God. And Jesus... Well, the Sanhedrin was the leader, religious leaders of the Israelites. They were supposed to be the ones saying, we've searched the scripture. This guy is definitely the Messiah. Instead, they said, this guy's definitely the Messiah. We'd better kill him. We don't want to lose our cush positions. Here in a few weeks, we'll celebrate Palm Sunday where the crowd shout out, save us, please, Lord, Hosanna. Many in those same crowds will on Good Friday shout out, crucify, crucify. And many of them on Pentecost Sunday, 50 days later, will become believers. Moses and Elijah could not put the Holy Spirit in people's hearts to make those who were rejecting them. Their message believe Jesus could. And in death, Moses and Elijah were different. God hid Moses' body. In the Reformation, Luther got very frustrated over all the holy relics that had become the tools of the devil to get people to worship false things. Luther often joked, if you put together all the slivers of the cross that are in altars across Europe, you would have enough to make all three crosses. Imagine what the devil would have done with Moses' body and how he could have led the people to false worship. So in death, God hides Moses' body. And Elijah, Elijah is one of two men in the Bible who was spared death. He's taken straight up to heaven. Well, Jesus is different. 
Those two could not defeat death. Jesus defeated death and emptied the tomb. So, once again, we don't have the empty tomb without the glory of God on the cross. It's not a worldly glory, but it is God's power and his grace. Moses and Elijah's glory was dim in comparison. Now, we're told in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were terrified. A cloud appeared and overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I think that the Bible mentions Peter's sins more than any of the other apostles because Peter was a man of action. But if you think Peter was some kind of a fool, he was not. You would find him to be a great pastor, even though he often made mistakes. He learned from them. Oftentimes people get trapped in analysis, paralysis, and they can't make a decision. Peter, Peter was a guy saying, nobody's saying anything, I'd better speak up. Unfortunately, Peter spoke quickly this time with mad-made intentions, just like he did when he rebuked Jesus for saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die for your sins. He didn't think about this. Moses and Elijah had been in heaven before God where there is no sin, where there are no tears, and now they're back here on earth comforting their Savior. Would they want to stay here in this is the world subject to sin and decay? The father rebukes Peter. This is my son. Listen to him. Peter needed to listen so that he would have the word to report the rest of his life. Not just to comfort himself, be comforted by that word, but to comfort his brother apostles and to comfort the other people, his brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes it's a reminder for us as we speak up about things we don't know about. It's not always good to keep quiet when God sends us, as we already said, to comfort our neighbor. We need to speak up. But there are other times when we need to be quiet and listen to the word of God. Peter was confused. He was terrified. He didn't know what to say. The only cure was to listen. You and I need to listen. Our sinful nature does not want to hear that it is damned to hell. And we have to force it to hear the law. But it also does not want to hear the good news that Jesus Christ, true God, became true man and kept the law perfectly for us. That is what empowers us to want to even struggle to keep the law, not in order to be saved, but simply out of thanks for God. If we're not listening to the word, we will become tools of the devil quickly. And so, Christ on the cross, when we see it, when we hear, that is when we are listening to his word. And we glorify Christ when we listen to his word. Is this the glory we want or the glory we need? Jesus chose the three because he has chosen to work through the lips of sinful human beings to comfort us with the glory of his being there on the cross and his emptying the tomb. Jesus usually hides his godly glory, wooing and winning us again through the lips of others. Moses and Elijah's glory was dim in comparison. The law will damn you. It will never empower you to keep it. Only Jesus and the faith he gives in him can do that. And we glorify Christ, therefore, when we listen to his word. The glory we need is Christ on the cross, using all of his power, all of his godly power, to defeat sin, death, and the devil for us. The powerful vision of his glory comes at the end when he returns, and you and I who believe in him are given glorified bodies and the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Amen.